This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. I think it's safe to say that Jenny Han has the YA market on lock. Jenny is the author behind the wildly successful trilogy and Netflix series To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and most recently, Amazon Prime picked up her novel The Summer I Turned Pretty. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jenny because of how honest she was about how representation and inclusion can sometimes be a double-edged sword. Check it out. When To All the Boys I've Loved Before dropped on Netflix back in 2018, it turned its lead actors into overnight stars, as well as the author who wrote the book the film is based on. Jenny Han had had success in the YA space with her other series, Burn for Burn and The Summer I Turned Pretty, but it was To All the Boys I've Loved Before that truly elevated her career. Not to mention discussion around inclusive storytelling, which for creators can sometimes be a double-edged sword. While it's certainly important for people of color to tell their own stories as it pertains to their race and ethnicity, there are some creators who wind up feeling a bit stuck inside the constraints of making something that's expected of them versus what they really may want to do. In my conversation with Jenny, we talk about that weight of representation as well as her method writing style and why having order and outlines can actually kill her creative process. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. So really, I want to, if you can just take us back to the beginning, because I'm very curious to know where did all of this start for you, like in terms of your career as an author, because being an author, it kind of, it correlates to other creative fields of you have a knack for it, but not everyone turns it into an actual career for many different reasons. So for you, what was that initial spark, that moment that said, I want to turn this into a career. I want to be an author. You know, I've always been a big reader and a writer since I was a kid. But growing up in Richmond, Virginia, I never really saw any authors come to my town. And I certainly never saw any authors of color or who were young. And so I never thought of it as a career possibility, honestly, until I was in college. I took this class called um, Writing for Children. Hmm. And it kind of reawakened that passion inside of me. Like, I had been writing my own stories uh, my whole life. But then in that class, I started writing what would become my first book. Shug? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, come on now. Do your homework. (laughs) That's my job. (laughs) Come now, Jenny. (laughs) Um, So uh, then from there, I'm like, I'm going to either be an editor, I'll be a writer, I'll be a librarian, I'll teach. And I applied for a bunch of different programs for when I graduated, and my top choice was to come to New York and get my MFA, Mm. and that ended up being what happened. Nice. And I I also find that interesting because I feel like when it comes to these creative fields, a lot of people, there are some merits of getting a formal education in whatever you choose to pursue, but then there's also a case for people just kind of going with their talents. And there's, sure. a, there's a lot of success stories with people who never got a formal degree in what they're actually doing. So what was that decision for you to kind of to pursue your MFA? It was going all in, mm. I think. And I knew that the seat of publishing is in New York. Yeah, I thought, I'm going to go. I'm going to just like put all my chips down for this thing. And 
take out the loans, live in the dorm, you know, do the whole thing. It felt like a shortcut into getting into New York and taking it really seriously. Right. And then I ended up selling that book when I was still in the program. Wow. It was like being around people learning. I was just soaking it all up, being right. in New York and meeting editors, other writers, and um, taking that really seriously. Yeah. So is that sort of your... Is that how you normally operate is just to go all in for anything or is it just like Yes. Or, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> is that has that so has that always been how you've operated or is that something you have to cultivate? I think that's just me. I'm a gambling woman by nature. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> and so I mean I think when you think back to your earliest works, I mean I'm thinking of the stories that haven't gone so far as being, you know, actually published, like things that are still in your notebooks or still files on your computer. You know what would you what were you trying to say as a young writer? Like what what stories were you writing? What what did you want to say? I don't even know if I was thinking about what I wanted to say mm-hmm. so much as it, I was just telling stories that um, I felt were real and true and characters that I wanted to spend time with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you never for me. I don't really think about what it is that I'm saying or what I did until I'm finished with it. Mm. And then I'm able to like have a bit of an aerial view of it and say, oh, this is what I was I was doing with this one. Right. So how do you find your way into a story? Like it, with that with that in mind, where do you start? Usually for me it starts with like a little situation. Like uh for To All the Boys of Love before it was you know, I used to write love letters yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Right. I didn't send them. And it's like, what would happen if they had been sent? Right. Then what? Um, and it came as quickly as that. And I actually have the email that I sent to my best friend that was like, I have this idea like about this girl who writes love letters and they all get sent out. And I think I'll call it to all the boys I've loved before. Isn't that cute? <laughs> 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 that was in 2010. That's 10 amazing. years ago. Right. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of, it all, I don't write in order. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I think of my process as like dessert first, where <laughs> I just write what I'm really excited to write about that day. Interesting. And I fill in the other stuff later. Um, I say it's kind of like going through a forest blindfolded, mm. and then you can't take it off until you're like 10%. Th- like you're 90% done. You're like 10% left of the journey. Right. And you're just sort of like feeling your way through the forest, and it's very frustrating, and then everything becomes illuminated mm. when you're almost – like you can almost just like see it. Right. Oh, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know because I think that you, you've you been pretty squarely in the YA space. I yes. know, you know, you had a few books that may have fallen more in like the children's book category. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you've, you've definitely been writing to younger audiences. And so how – how did you fall into that? Like, what was what? Why write stories with these younger protagonists for younger audiences? Like, what was the inspiration for that? Well, the first book, Sugar, I started writing it when I was twenty. Mm. You know, so right. I was just literally a year out of my teens right. with that. And then um, I think, but most of all, I would say I'm, I've always been drawn to stories about young people. Even as an adult, I love you know watching like a movie about teens and like first love mm. or like families and. I just find it really compelling narratively yeah. because it's someone experiencing things for the first time. And, you know, now as somebody in my 30s, like, you remember the first, the middle part can get a little bit blurry. It's like, yeah. what did I do at 27? I don't, right. <laughs> I can't tell you what 31 was, right? you know, but I can tell you what 16 was. Yeah. It's visceral. 
And so I like to spend time in, in that in that place because everything is like much more sharp and like um kind of like pungent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can just almost like smell it. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that, you know, when it comes to these kind of coming of age stories, it's you think back to your teens. I mean, you feel it is it is kind of the 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 realm of first and you feel those things more intensely than you than you may feel, you know, when you're twenties and your thirties or whatever. So I do think it's an interesting area to explore as an adult you know that um things will get better yeah that you can get through it like you've been you've had this fight you've you know cried these tears it's really bad right now but it'll get better but you don't have that um kind of breadth breadth that's a hard word to say i know right experience (laughs) you know what i mean like it's um so i think it it it's much more amplified and you have so much less control at that age like your parents can be like we're moving tomorrow and you're like, what? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, oh, you're changing schools. Oh, your friends no longer want to like right. be with you anymore. And all that stuff is, um, it's a lot. And so I treat it like with the same kind of respect I would treat writing any adult stories too, mm-hmm. you know, where um, it's just about, I think, how how much you've experienced and like the the degree to which you've experienced it. But it's mm-hmm. not saying that just because you were 16 um, falling in love doesn't mean that it was just puppy love and it was nothing. Right. So, I mean, for you, is it just having this reservoir of experiences that you tap into? Because <laughs> I think that where, because we talked a little bit about where you start, but how how do you tap into these emotions and make sure that you're coming from it from an authentic place, knowing that, you know, you yourself aren't a teenager anymore. So where do, how do you tap into these experiences? Well, I never think of it like, um, about character or people by like age, I guess. Because mm-hmm. even when I was young, I was hanging out. I loved hanging out with like my friends' grandparents yeah. <laughs> and like hearing their stories. And of course. It's just all like, you know, people are people. And so I don't approach character differently, I guess, in terms of tapping into it. I often think of it like method writing, mm. you know, where I'm like um, writing a scene that's like really sad. And then I'm kind of remembering times when I've like felt those emotions and kind of trying to pour it onto the page. Is there an example of that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's this, there's, okay, so in P.S. I Still Love You, there is a part of a breakup, mm-hmm. and Laura Jean is really sad, and she thinks, I just wish my mom was here. Mm. And my mom has not passed away, but, you know, people in my life who have passed on, I was just thinking about those feelings where you just feel like, you know, so alone, and you just want that, like, comfort of that person, and you don't have them. Of so that's Actually, I'm tearing up thinking about it. Um, But as I was writing that scene, I was crying a lot. You know, and I think that's how you get into where you need to be into the headspace and the emotional space is you kind of, if you can draw from your own experiences. Right. And I think that's why I love to write is to think about connection and um, like points of connection with other people and like humanity and and being empathetic. Mm -hmm. And speaking of points of connection with people, you know, I know that. You, because we talked about some of your previous work, and one of them was the Burn for Burn trilogy, mm-hmm. which you wrote with your uh, with the writing partnership yes, on Vivian. The one so, I, yeah, yeah, and so I find that interesting because I feel like most times you don't hear about collaborating with writers in in the book space, writing essays because that's a very personal, insular kind of activity. So, how did that collaboration come about with writing with uh, Siobhan for Burn for Burn? We met in grad school, mm-hmm. and um, we had been reading each other's work for years. Mm-hmm. And having writing dates where we'd be like, oh, I'll see you at Starbucks on Monday. Oh. And we would just sit there and write all day long. It's like accountability that of course. I think is helpful. Um, but I knew that she was like my first reader, someone who like I'll send her something that's not quite 
there yet. And mm-hmm. I know she can help me get it to where it needs to be. Uh, so we both have read each other's stuff, given notes on it. We still do. Yeah. And so what made you want to collaborate on a book together? And how was that process like? It was really fun. And I know a lot of people who've collaborated on stuff, but they usually would pass it back and forth. And the two of us were just kind of in each other's laps, basically (laughs) writing it. You know what I mean? Like, Because we weren't going into it with like the ego of like, oh, that's my line. I would just literally delete something she just wrote and be like, this is like funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Or vice versa. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's better. Huh. So what would you say you learned about your creative process in working with another author? I think the hardest adjustment for me was um, we had to outline everything and plan it out because we wrote the whole thing together. So we needed to know what was happening. And I never outline. I kind of go, you know, by the seat of my pants. Like I said, I don't write in order even. (laughs) Um, and so that was just different for me to still be able to find moments of serendipity um, mm-hmm. and inspiration because a lot of why I don't like writing in order is because I like to just sit there and see what comes. And then you have like these sparks of inspiration mm-hmm. when you're not too hemmed in. Um, but it was good for me to try it that way too. And now I'm also doing like some screenwriting and I am – it's a totally different process. Yeah. And – Kind of to that note of of just kind of going where your creative burst leads you, how do you build a structure around that? Because I think that, you know, I think a lot of people do find it would be easier to go buy an outline and have these and have these guidelines. But for you personally, with your particular creative approach to writing, how do you make sure that you are not going completely off the rails? I mean Or is I, it okay to go off the rails? <laughs> I think it's more like how do you make sure that you're still working? Mm. Um you know, like if you're sitting there waiting for inspiration. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, God, read me. Right? That's, like, kind of, that's how I yeah. operate. I feel like I can get really tricky to say like, oh, I, I, I don't want to sit down and have a writing date, for example. But then I'm like, oh, inspiration will come. But then it never – sometimes it doesn't. And well, then I'm like I've gone a whole day without writing anything. I mean I often use the analogy of like surfing of your – sitting there out in the ocean waiting for the wave yeah. but you got to be out in the ocean or how are you going to like catch a wave and then sounds like a proverb i love it right yeah. and then <laughs> it comes and you just ride it all the way to shore and i like yesterday was supposed to be a big work day for me and then i like was like i went to see a movie i was like i couldn't focus when i was looking at my computer and then of course right before i go to bed it always that's when it always hits <laughs> you know and you go oh and i gotta ride the wave i gotta stay up for as long as right. i'm feeling it Right. Oh, God. This is too familiar for me. More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I really want to dive into uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before because this, of course, is really just your breakout hit with the, with the Netflix movie and now it's sequel. So I want to know, because we talked a little bit about where it started because this was rooted somewhat in your personal experiences mm-hmm. of writing these love letters that you never sent. But I want to hear a little bit more about how do you know when to turn something into a story? Because I know that as writers, you're often encouraged to kind of mine your personal life for stories, but you can experience a million things and not everything will pan out into something. So for you, 
what is that indicator to say this is worth a story, this is worth something telling? I think I never I never have that doubt about it. Mm. Once it it gets going, I just know this is this is the next thing. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who has like 10 books in my drawer. I know a lot of people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, who go, and I can't even imagine it because to spend two years working on something and then going, mm, this isn't it. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Like it's for me, writing is like drawing blood from a stone. Every mm-hmm. word. I I don't like throw, any, throw anything. Right. Um, I'm not the kind of drafter that does like uh, pages and pages and pages and then like tosses it out. <laughs> I just save everything and then I know it's going to make its way somewhere. Right. And I guess that's for me um, how I can feel really optimistic is because even, like, terrible experiences will be used for something. It's all, like, grist for the mill. Right, right. And f- for to all the boys I've loved, I mean, how how did that even come to to Netflix? Like, what was that? Because this is the first, the first of any of your books to be adapted into, you know, film or television. So for you, like, was that, was that a deal that you personally went out with? Or did your agent, like, how did that, how did that ex- exactly come about, the relationship with Netflix? With Netflix. Um... I think this is – people have a lot of confusion when with movies on Netflix, I think, uh, <laughs> in terms of um, the way it gets made. So yeah. it was made before and then sold mm-hmm. to Netflix. Um, and the journey for this had been um, Overbrook, which is Will Smith's production company, um, had optioned it. Mm-hmm. And then um, they had this, a deal with Sony, and Sony didn't want to make it. And then Awesomeness – um, which is owned by Viacom, mm-hmm. um, came on and said they wanted to buy it from them because they were going to make it and fund right. it themselves. Hmm. And so that's how the movie got made. And then it was all done and it was sold to Netflix. Right. So why do you think, I guess like what do you think wasn't palatable about this particular book or this particular project for Sony? Like what what do you think, what do you think I, they skipped over? Because obviously I'm sure they're kicking themselves now. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. Honestly, I think that in general, I can't speak to Sony specifically, but I can say in general, it was really hard um, to find anybody who would be willing to make it with an Asian American lead. Mm. Um, I met with a lot of different producers early on, and Overbrook was were the only ones who said that they would do it. Wow, that's so. I mean, I think I guess now, think because this was what? How many years ago? Two thousand. 14? Wow. 13? Yeah. Which doesn't seem that long ago, but of course that was, you know, I think every year brings a deeper conversation about diversity and inclusion. And I just find it interesting that only, what, like seven years ago, this was still an issue of like not having... I mean, honestly, it wasn't, I would say even more recently than that because it got made in 2017. But I was nervous the whole way through of what was going to happen. And I don't think people... I think people now are really happy to be, like, woke and be like, oh, it's all about diversity and representation. Mm -hmm. But it just – it's been a very quick catapult, I think, in a lot of ways for – I think a lot of people were talking about it, but not people, like, in the industry in in a way that they do now where it's it's sort of the standard Mm -hmm. to talk about it and have an answer for it. And people are looking around going, oh, wow, we have no people of color in this movie. We got to, like, change that. I think that's a much more recent thing. And – I, I personally give a lot of credit to April Rain and her Oscar So White campaign on Twitter because it got people talking. And then yeah. it was on the cover of the trades and the magazines and stuff. Like, 
the hashtag was. Absolutely. And people are quick to dismiss a Twitter campaign or um, online activism, but that really, I think, moved culture and made people sit up and listen and um, have a vocabulary to talk about that stuff because people did not, when I was having those conversations, it didn't even, it was very shocking to them when I would bring up the fact that she was Asian. They weren't even um, considering that. That's so crazy. That's so, and I feel like not all of your novels have, you know, an Asian American protagonist. So for you, was that was that a conscious decision to kind of assimilate or give audiences what they want in terms of what what might appeal to quote unquote the mass audience? Or what was your thinking? Because even in Suge, we talked about that that you know the protagonist was, was like a like a white girl. So I guess like how did that? How did leaning into kind of Asian-American protagonists come into play for you? Yeah, and Shook, um, the main character was white, and her best friend was Asian-American. And then part of the issue was people didn't really want to buy that book mm-hmm. with an Asian lead. I mean, yeah. like, and so I knew after The Summer I Turned Pretty came out and that was a hit, mm-hmm. that I was trying to build up some level of trust with an audience, but also to be able to kind of call my own shots too and say like, this is, you can buy this because this is, people are going to buy it because they already trust me. Mm -hmm. They read other stuff that I wrote and they will give us a chance. And I think part of the problem is for so long, um, books about people of color have been exclusively about pain. Yes. And you pass right by that book because you're going, oh, I just want to read like something fun and like exactly. light and be at the beach and I don't really want to read about an immigrant story of like my ancestors story. like we traveled over here and sure. all, like, yeah. or a story about enslaved people a story exactly. about like you know yeah. whatever people don't want to do that every day yeah. I mean people will do that but I I think um, there's been that as a hurdle mm-hmm. and so I was my hope was I because I had the idea for To All the Boys like I did other stuff be- before then, but I had that idea. Yeah. But I was like, let me give the what I thought was my like idea with the most kind of like effervescence and bounce to it. I was like, this is gonna have wings. Mm. I'm gonna give this to this character, and it'll hit with people because right. I think there's something about it that's that people are drawn to. Yeah, and I think one thing that is for even people who haven't had a chance to read. Uh, to all the boys I've loved, and it's you know, and it's two other uh, books in the trilogy, and just for the people who just have may have seen the Netflix movies, it's I think what resonates is that it's it's a familiar story. Like we have, it's this kind of star-crossed lovers high school tale that we saw in the '80s, like Pick Your Brat Pack movie, in the '90s with Can't Hardly Wait, she's all that, all of that. And so, what do you think to all the boys I've loved brings to that very familiar story format that we may not have seen before? I mean, I don't think I've never seen a movie, a teen movie with um, an Asian American girl mm-hmm. at the center. Never. Like I had not seen that in my life. Right. I was racking my brain trying to think of if there had been one before this. I think the last um, movie that we had seen with like Asian American women at the center was Joylet Club, which yeah. was uh, twenty five years prior to that. You know what I mean? But I had not seen a teen girl, and I think. There's something normalizing about seeing that where you're going. It's just like everybody's pretty much the same in a way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People are just people. Yeah. And we're not so different after all. It's like there's many different ways to look like and be like an all-American girl. Right. And for you, where was that balance of making sure that we – that it was – because one thing that I do love about it is that it, it's exactly what you said. It just normalizes. You know, just she is – like Lara Jean is an American girl. But there's also sprinklings of – 
her career and her Korean heritage in it. So for you, where is that? Where was that balance in making sure that there was this representation, there was this um, introduction into a culture that some readers may not be familiar with, but also not leaning too far into it to where it becomes like you're almost making a, a, some over point or something. Well, yeah, because it's not, for me, it wasn't about that. Exactly. It was right. about like, this is this girl's life, mm-hmm. very specific to her. Right. You know, and so I'm not trying to sit there and do a story that's going to represent every Asian American person. You can't. You can't. <laughs> yeah. And I think the best stories are the ones that feel really specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her story is her story. It's not trying to be everybody's story. Yeah. And then I think that's why people can relate to it is because I hope it feels specific um, to her and her family. Right. And for you, what is this? what has the process been like seeing your work adapted into films? Because obviously with every adaptation, there are changes that are being made. And in the sequel, I, I want to say that the one of the main uh, kind of catalyst for action was a game of assassin in the book. Yeah. And that's something that we don't see in the film. So I guess how involved are you in those changes and making those creative choices into making it work for film? I wish it had been in the film. Yeah, you know? right? And, I, Assassins is fun. <laughs> it's so fun. We did that in high school. We did that senior it. year. It was yeah. so much fun. Um, I know. And I always hear it from all the the fans who are like, why don't you put this and why right? don't you do that? And I'm like, guys, like I'm only one voice <laughs> in the room. And, you know, I can advocate for certain things and I'm not going to win all the battles. I of will course. win some. Right. I'll lose some. And I don't think that you have to really pick and choose. Mm. But also a book is such a different medium than a film. Yes. You know, and – not everything that works in the book is going to work in the film. It might, but like other people have different, their own interpretation of what the story is and their mm-hmm. own vision. It maybe doesn't include that. So you have to be, um, if you want to be, I think, a part of it, you have to be willing to um, understand that your voice isn't going to be the end all be all mm. in the situation because there's other uh, voices in the room who are trying to make the story. Yeah. Was that a hard lesson for you to learn or was it something that you kind of took too naturally? Because that's it's a, it's a big ask for some people to, I guess, I don't even want to call it ego, but just you, this is your work. This is your baby. You love this. And to see it change even a little bit can kind of, you know, set people on fire and just feel like, what are you doing? So for you, did you find, was that, was that a hard lesson for you to learn and to just letting it go and trusting the powers that be. I think I became, I was somewhat inured to it because I knew that was what the, I I knew that's how it went. But um, I know there were little things like on the first movie where I was like, I think in the script originally, the character of John Ambrose McLaren, um, the writer changed his name. Mm. And um, I was like, this is a really, this is an important character. So if there ever is a sequel, and I think no one was thinking about a sequel at the time. Mm -hmm. I was like, he needs to like, Keep his name, yeah, please. Yeah, <laughs> and we're glad that that happened because obviously, as we see in the sequel, it's a big deal. So, you know, I I feel like is there a particular character in To All the Boys I've Loved that you had a hard time fleshing out? Because you talked about how do you find your way into a story, but you know, obviously, these stories are based on these characters, and so for you, I imagine like Lara Jean might be easier for you because there's a lot that you pull in from your personal life, but. Is there a character that you had a particularly hard time getting inside their head? No. Really? No, because I think I write character first and I figure out Mm -hmm. the story around what I think the character would do. Mm -hmm. So that's never an issue for me. 
love that. <laughs> I answered like a boss. <laughs> it's, I mean, how has seeing your work being adapted changed your perception of your work? Because I, I feel like you know, we were talking about how, you know, there's there's all these changes that are being made and how things work in books, but they may not work in film. So has that given you a new perspective on your work, on how you even approach your work? I will see. I think um, I haven't really... Since the movies have been happening, I've been really busy. Like last year, I was um, producing on both of the second and third because we filmed them mm-hmm. back to back. Um, so I was on set. I was like in the movie. I think. Did oh I yeah, see yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I was you gonna did say. See me. I was watching it. I was just like, ah, pause skirt. Um, <laughs> and like you know, doing a lot of. I was working really hard on that stuff. Yeah. And um, I haven't been deep into a new book yet, so I guess I'll see. I suspect I'm going to try something different on this next one in terms of my process because mm-hmm. on my last book, which was Always in Forever, Laura Jean, God, it was really torturous, Why the process so? was. Um, because I was doing my usual thing of like feeling my way through, but I was under a deadline and it was like, you know, you start getting a panic when you're <laughs> trying to follow it that way. You yeah. know what I mean? You're like, what am I what am I doing? You don't right. know. Like it's harder. It, right. If you could have forever to work on something, then you could kind of just sit there and it's like picking up little stones on the beach and then like <laughs> fill your little bucket and then you yeah. lay it all out and look at the stones and you like move the stones around and you make something. Right. Um, but because I've been um, doing some screenwriting now, I'm, I'm having to outline that stuff and I think I'm going to bring that into the next book and just see what happens. Mm. And I was glad you I'm glad you brought that up again because how has that process been like for you screenwriting? You don't have to get into specifics on what you're writing. I'm sure that's probably top secret, but how has that how has that transition been for you? It's really different. Yeah. I'm very ignited by um new challenges though and learning new stuff. So I like it when it's hard. I like to sit there and stretch a little bit mm-hmm. and um it's making everything visual when I think a lot of my stuff is very um, internal and insular. Right. You know, and then you put it to where people can see it. And you're going, this is how she feels. Well, how am I seeing that? You know, mm-hmm. those those are just the kind of hurdles you have to jump when you're moving from um, book to screen. All right. And speaking of hurdles, I mean, one thing I always like to ask my guests is when you think back at your career at this point, what would you say has been the most significant creative hurdle that you've faced? Mm. I don't know that um, – I would say even – it's been more recent. Mm. I think it's – I think having um, To All the Boys be as successful as the film was, um, then I think you just have a bigger audience and more people looking at what you're doing. And then, um, you know, being one of the few Asian-American um, writers, it's just – there's a lot of pressure and you, you're thinking about like, what am I going to do next? And like, does it have to fit into um, these boxes of representation or whatever? And you kind of just, I think there's times when I've seen this throughout with a lot of different kind of artists um, who say, I, I want to just be able to write a story yeah. and that, you know, like, yeah. um, and I want to just be an actor. Mm-hmm. I want to just be able to play parts and not have everything be um, a big, you know, dissection mm-hmm. and interrogation of like race in America. Yeah. Right. So that's I think a privilege that we don't have as um creators of color because everything is viewed through for that lens. Right. Um but I wish that we did have a bit more of that freedom to just 
be thinking about story first and the art first without thinking about what people need from you and want from you. Mm. That is such a real answer. And it's, I find it, I completely agree because I want to say Daniel Kluwa got. I just saw that. Yeah. Like where I just people, saw, I was like, Daniel, I'm feeling you. Yeah. Yes. Because it's like people, obviously he's been in movies that have absolutely touched on the topic of race. And now that's kind of become expectant of him. Right. He, I don't blame him when he says, I don't really want to talk about this anymore. Or like I want to like. Jordan have, Peele has said something um, similarly with like um, us. He was like, this is not about race. Exactly. This is about, you know. Right. Do you, I mean, I mean, how are you shouldering? I know this is pretty early because, you know, this is this, the success of To All the Boys I've Loved is still, it's still ongoing. But how are you handling that? I don't want to call it a burden, but that, that pressure really. I think what keeps me up at night is, is wanting to make sure that I'm still willing to take swings, to take wild swings and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I envy some artists who it seems like they just do what they want to do and they're not too worried about mm-hmm. what people will say. Do you know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, like right now it's like that feedback chamber that you get immediately like, no, 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 this isn't it. This is – we don't want this. We like this. We don't want this from you. And um, I think we've seen now that there is um, an arc to people mm-hmm. and a people's art there's an arc to the art yeah. where you might rewatch something from five years ago and go, oh, actually, now it kind of hits different. And I don't think of it that way anymore. But perhaps that person is like, I don't want to be – I want to quit or <laughs> um, is afraid to I don't take that wild swing. Yeah. Um, so I guess I just want to be able to still um, let my imagination run wild and, and do things and, and serve the story first. Because that's how I've always been, and I think I've been able to do that within publishing because it's just a lot smaller of an audience, mm-hmm. you know. So right. the margins are a lot smaller, the risk is smaller, um, and you just know that if this one doesn't go, then the next one you'll try something different too. Yeah. So to that point, and to kind of sum up this conversation, how have you come to define creativity? That's a really big question. I can tell by that big size. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that's like a that's hard. What is it? Like I think that's what I always try to protect first, mm-hmm. right? It's my creativity and um I guess it's just letting yourself be free to imagine whatever and then make it something beautiful. Mm. I love that. Ah, Jenny, this has been an absolute delight. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then.